Hi, my name is Mike Herbster. I'm privileged to be the director of Southland Christian Camp Ministries. For over 25 years, Southland has centered itself around the ministry of preaching. We believe that God uses the foolishness of preaching to convict hearts and transform lives. Our prayer is that today's sermon would push you to become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you listen, would you carefully evaluate your life in light of God's Word and take the appropriate action to grow in your walk with Him? We hope that you will enjoy today's message. Amen. That's great. What a great emphasis tonight on God's Word. I appreciate that. And I have found in recent days that, um, you know, going through different things in life and ministry and, you know, I've got a lot of counsel and advice from friends. It's always encouraging to be pushed to the Bible. And, you know, this, it may not resonate super great with you right now, but those of us that have been Christians for a long time and I've been through some challenges in life. Uh, literally, when you push yourself to the Word of God, and the Word of God becomes a source of strength for you, a source of encouragement to you, something literally that just keeps you going, uh, that is just great. And I, I hope as you come to camp, one of the things you'll get from it is an emphasis on the Word of God, and that you really will believe that, that you'll you'll believe that this, this is a powerful, helpful, and life-changing book and uh, that, that we, we rest in that for uh, our lives. And that's why we're preaching it tonight. I hope it'll really be a blessing to you. Uh, I'd like to take you, uh, have you take your Bibles tonight, turn to the book of Ruth, if you would. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. That's where it is. It's probably not a, the most common book for you, uh, but it is a powerful book. It's, in fact, my favorite book in all the Bible. And I'll try to set some of its background for you uh, tonight as we get into the message. But I do uh, want to say how much not only do I appreciate God's Word and this camp and what it's meant to me over uh, now some uh, 16 years of my ministry and being involved here in some way, I really appreciate the Herbsters that we're singing here today. I've been uh, personal friends with them for a long time, and they're just wonderful people. They really are wonderful servants of the Lord, and I'm just so glad to see them leading here at this camp. And I was watching them sing and uh, was, was just thinking that I've known them so long now. Uh, McKenna, who's the youngest uh, daughter, uh, when she was born and, and Amy went to deliver uh, her at the hospital there in Kansas City, me and my wife watched their other three kids. So uh, Micah and Malachi and, uh, and Michaela were just young, and we watched them as McKenna was uh, born, and we were some of the first people outside of his family to see her. And we just go way back. I mean, just some funny stories, some great, great things that happen. Uh, Malachi's up there in the uh, sound booth, and usually every time I preach at camp, I usually get a good story about Malachi in. And uh, Malachi just graduated from high school. Congratulations, bud. Uh, it's hard to believe. Yeah, give him a hand. He's a great guy. 
I remember uh, one night we were uh, we were over at the Herbster's house at a trailer at the time. We were uh, they used to have this big long trailer, and it, you know it could house like seventy five people. Uh, it was an amazing uh, a work of art. They used to we used to pull our trailers in here every year and park them back in the back of the camp, and we were neighbors every summer. So I had a trailer, and Mike had a trailer. We were trailer people. I'm telling you, I mean we 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 were the definition of trailer people. We were just awesome. And and we lived beside each other and we'd we'd have these, you know, long days at camp and pretty much every night uh after uh after camp we'd we'd go up and usually one of our we'd go to each other's trailers and play games in the two, three o'clock in the morning and get up the next day and do it all again. And uh and and, and oftentimes uh we didn't we didn't have kids till let's see, my daughter, where's my my daughter's back there? I didn't introduce introduce my kids. My goodness, let me do that. My daughter's here, Adriana. Adriana, would you just wave? Would you do that, please? That's my um, 11-year-old daughter, Adriana, and she was born in 2007, 2007, and uh, in fact, we were here at camp serving when Adriana was born, and uh, then my son, Brent, Brent, would you stand up there on your chair, buddy? Go ahead, stand up there and give everybody a little wave there, bud. That's my son, Brent, and he's six, and uh, you can go ahead and be seated there, buddy. And he, <laughs> you can stand there all night too if you want, but uh, he's, uh, he, w- he was born after we left here. But anyways, so, so, so really uh, Mike and Amy had their kids. We didn't, we didn't really have kids until the last year we were at camp. So uh, we kind of hung around theirs all the time. We were watching them raise these uh, guys and girls and, and, uh, and they, they'd make them go back to their bedroom when we were playing games. I'm sure it was really hard for you guys and we were staying up all night. And, uh, and Amy one night made uh, some cookies and, and I remember her distinctly telling the kids not to touch the, the hot, uh, you know, cookie thing, the cookie sheet, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't really know what it's all called. I don't really do a whole lot of cooking, so forgive me for that, but whatever. And she did, you know, she told them, hey, guys, you, you don't touch us, this hot. And we turned around, and we started playing whatever we were playing. And a few seconds later, we just hear this scream, and we turned around, and Malachi, I don't know, he was probably two or something like that, he's walking over from the little kitchen over to where we were playing games, and this is what he was doing. <laughs> he was pointing at his tongue. And, it, and Amy was like, what are you doing? And, I, and he said, I, I touched the cookie sheet with my tongue. And I remember Amy saying, I told you not to do that. And just watching the poor little guy suffer. And we just honestly had a good laugh at his expense because he was so dumb, okay, to to touch a cookie sheet with his tongue. That was one of my just favorite memories of Malachi when he was growing up as a kid. And so, you know, the lesson, of, of course, is just this. Don't do stupid stuff, okay? It's a great, it's a great life lesson, okay? But wouldn't it be great if, if nobody was stupid? Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, just like if never, ever again you had to see somebody do something stupid. I mean, that would just be, that would be wonderful. John Wayne said, life is hard, but life is harder if you're stupid. So, hey, look, uh, it complicates things, and I'm just kidding. That was some fun memories there, and it just was great to see you guys sing tonight. That was a real blessing. All right, Ruth chapter number one, okay? Now, before I, before I get into it, I want to kind of set it up here a little bit, okay? Ruth, according to Ruth chapter one, verse one, is a little sub-story 
of the entire book of Judges. Okay? So, the book of Judges is, without a doubt, the lowest point, uh, well, maybe not the lowest, but certainly one of the lowest points of the entire Old Testament. I mean, you got, you got, you know, you got, you got Genesis, awesome. Exodus, awesome. Leviticus, yeah. <laughs> Numbers, way low. Did you know that the book of Numbers, really, if it weren't for what happened to Kadesh Barnea, the book of Numbers wouldn't even be in the Bible. It was, a, it was a total account of what happened after these people rejected God. I mean, if it weren't for, if it weren't for them turning away from God, the whole part, the whole story would never be in the Bible. Deuteronomy, of course, means second law. It's just a restating of the, the original law that God gave as he's getting ready to cause them to enter into the promised land. And then you got the book of Joshua. And Joshua certainly is a highlight book. The, the entering into the promised land. Awesome. But man, when you open up the book of Judges, chapter 1, you see a generation turning away from God and then another generation that rose up and they did not know God. And they not only did they not know God, they didn't know the works that he did. And by the time you get to Genesis or uh, Judges chapter 2, you are seeing basically a wholesale rejection of all the great things that God did in the book of Joshua. And, and then the whole book just goes down and down and down and down. And it's this weird cycle of events. You got, you've got, you got the people of Israel turning their back on God. So God judges them by allowing an enemy nation to come in and rule over them. And then they go into bondage for, you know, a variety of numbers of years. And then uh, somewhere in the middle of that bondage, they cry out to God for forgiveness. And God forgives them. And then he delivers them by sending them a judge. Okay, these are people like Gideon, Samson, and others. These judges, these men that, that give us a representation of God's deliverance. They come in and God uses them in great power to deliver the children of Israel. And then they just, then they cycle right back into it again. By the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, you are just seeing some very awful things take place as these people are moving far, far away from God. And really, the book of Judges uh, shows us what life looks like whenever you continue to turn your back on God. Now, within that story, the book of Judges as a whole, there's a smaller story that, that, that has to do with a family uh, that was led by a man named Elimelech. So, so, if you will, the book of Judges is about the entire nation of Israel, and the book of Ruth is about one family in the nation of Israel that we're seeing a little bit of an inside look at what happens in a family as they turn their back on God, as the whole nation had turned its back on God, okay? So with that thought in mind, I want to I read, beginning in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and I want you to follow along with me as we read. The Bible says here, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malan and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malan and Chilion died also, both of them, and the woman was left 
of her two sons and her husband. I want to preach to you on this subject tonight, defining moments, defining moments, decisions lead you in a direction, and a direction leads you to a destination. A young person, listen, it is very likely that during this time of your life as a teenager or a college student, that you are going to make significant decisions in your life. Those decisions are going to set you in a direction. That direction that you take in life is going to lead you to a destination. And I want to encourage you as you consider this, I'm going to highlight some decisions in your life tonight using this story as an illustration of how that works in our lives. And I want to, I want to encourage you that starting right here, right now, tonight, you would make some very carefully, wisely chosen decisions for yourself and for your future. A number of years ago, there was a young man who was um, had an opportunity to use his musical abilities as a career. Now, I don't have any music abilities, okay? So I can barely turn on the radio in my truck, all right? It's, it, it's, it's great that, that I have children who are better at technology than I am so that they can help me figure out even how to do that. So I'm not skilled. I got, I got, there's all these people up here. Y'all, y'all are like playing multiple instruments and, you know, singing and stuff. You know, good for you. Good for you. We're, we're so proud of you, you know. I don't have any. How many of you are like me? No music abilities at all. No music abilities. Of course, uh, George, though, man, George had a great voice and great instrumental skills and, and uh, was wrestling, really, through what he was going to do with his future. He had auditioned for some jobs. At that time in American history, a lot of radio, even radio performances, were done live over the air. So, you know, bands or singers or whatever, they would actually do their music right there. Oftentimes, the MCs or disc jockeys would be performers. And so this guy was so skilled that he had some opportunities to work in the radio industry using his talents. And, and, and he was struggling because the main job opportunity that he had in radio was a job at a essentially a secular radio station and and although the job was a good job a good paying job the job did not allow him to uh, proclaim his faith in Jesus Christ or to sing songs about Jesus Christ and because he was a Christian he was conflicted about this he was from a good home his parents knew uh, the decisions that he was making. In fact, his mom was very involved in this decision-making process, and she knew that he had to make a decision rather quickly about this particular job. George also played uh, the piano and sang at his local church on Sundays, most Sundays, and his mother knew that George would always sit down at the family piano uh, on Saturday evenings and practice to worship uh, uh, on the Lord's Day. And so, uh, true to his custom, George, uh, on, a, on a Saturday evening before he needed to make the decision, he, he, he sat down at the family piano. His mother knew that, son, and she stumbled upon a poem that she decided to get the poem and put it in a picture frame and set it 
on the family piano so that when George sat down to play that night, he would look and he would notice it and likely would read it. Something very powerful happened that night. That, first of all, that poem became a hymn. That poem is a poem that you probably never heard as a poem. It was written by a virtually unknown young lady by the name of Rhea Miller, but is in virtually every hymn book that you would ever look at today. The words go something like this, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have uh, be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Well, that hymn text, which was a poem at the time, was written by Rhea Miller, but it was arranged into a song that night. Not only did that take place that night, but also through the testimony of the poem and the words of that poem, George became convinced that God did not want him to use his music ability in a secular way, but that in fact God wanted him to use his musical ability to serve the Lord with. After making his decision not to take the radio job that he was given, he was offered another musical position in radio in the city of Chicago. And so he relocated to Chicago. This young man's name was George Beverly Shea. Now, some of you uh, may not recognize that name. Some of you wouldn't know much about that. But right after George Beverly Shea made that decision to go to Chicago, something else very interesting took place in Chicago. There was another young man who was about to become one of the greatest uh, pulpiteers and preachers in the history, not only of America, but of the world, by the name of Billy Graham. Billy Graham had recently moved to Chicago as well. And Billy Graham's fame in the Youth for Christ movement became very relevant in the 1940s and 50s. And, and, and most of you have probably made the connection by now that God allowed George Beverly Shea, the musician, to move to Chicago, and Billy Graham, the great preacher, to move to Chicago. And they formulated a team that for decades, decades, traveled not only the United States of America, but literally around the world. And George Beverly Shea would stand up after Billy Graham would preach and, and those great gospel sermons and he would stand up and sing famously the old gospel invitation song, Just As I Am. In fact, Billy Graham's biography, the most, the most common one, the one that uh, has been the staple biography of all the accounts of his life, is called Just As I Am. You see, you can't really account the life of Billy Graham without including the life of George Beverly Shea. The great musician who died just a few years back, I believe is age 101. I mean, just think about that for just a minute. Just think about one night at a family piano, uh, seeing the words of a poem, going through prayer, making a decision that literally transformed the entire future of this man's life. And I'm here to tell you that the same thing happens to young people every single year at camps. Young people are faced with biblical truth Young people are faced with massive decisions that they're going to make. They're faced with how the direction of their life is going to go. And I believe with all my heart that this week, 
Uh, just like every other week at camp, there will be major life-changing decisions that will affect and alter the course of your life, either for good or for bad. Now, I want you to see some of these tonight. I want you to see there are three clear decisions that are made in our story before us in Ruth chapter number one. Three clear decisions, I believe, that represent the decision-making process of every kid in this room or every adult for that matter. Number one, I want you to see that in our text, there is a decision of rebellion. There is a decision of rebellion. The Bible tells us in verses 1 and 2 that this man, Elimelech, who was experiencing a famine in the land, decided to take his family and move them out of God's protective cover in the land of Israel. And he decided to move them away from Bethlehem, Judah. And he decided he was going to move them into the country of Moab. Now, I recognize that for some of you that are not Bible scholars, or not Bible students, this may not seem like a big deal, but listen very carefully. Bethlehem was a very significant place in the Bible. Bethlehem was a place that David the king is going to be born. Of course, Ruth is going to become David's great-great-grandmother throughout this story. But the fact of the matter is Bethlehem was the call, the house of bread, the place of God's provision, a place where God was going to meet his people's needs. Of course, some hundreds years later, there was going to be another significant person born in Bethlehem, and that was going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. This family lived in Bethlehem. This family lived under God's provision. And when this family started going through a very difficult time, they made a very, very bad choice. They decided to leave God's provision and go and live in a country that were the sworn enemies of God. A young person got to understand this. There was something very sacred and special in the Old Testament about the land. The land represented God's promises. The land represented God's provisions. The land represented every bit of the relationship between God and his people that went all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and the beginnings of the relationship between God and Israel. It was no small thing for this family to tuck tail and run away from God and that is exactly what they did and I want to challenge you tonight don't be like that this is no time for you to run from your country this is no time for you to decide that now I don't want that kind of stuff I, I don't want what I grew up with I don't want the teaching and the preaching and the legacy that maybe I've been accustomed to in my life this is exactly what took place uh, with the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. The Bible says, and he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger said, uh, said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that followed to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, watch it, and took his country, uh, his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Young person, I'm telling you that when this family decided to leave Israel and to move to Moab, it was not just a physical uh, relocation, it was a spiritual relocation. It was a family departing from their roots. It was a family leaving their faith. It was a family no longer trusting in God. Hey, listen, young person, it ought to be frightening to you to realize today that a very high percentage of young people that graduate from Christian high school do not return to their church, sometimes do not return to church at all. They go off, they go to college, they get away from their church. They 
They get away from their families. They get away from their good friends at church. They go maybe living in dorms at colleges or going off into the military. And, and because their hearts are not set toward the Lord, it wasn't that they weren't rebelling all along. It's just that their newfound freedoms allowed them to express it like never before. And I'm telling you, long before you ever actually depart physically, you have long departed spiritually. They don't do it. Don't leave. Some of you right now have the seeds of rebellion in your heart right now. I remember that when I was a kid. I didn't get saved till I was 19, but, but I grew up in church. I remember uh, wanting to set as far back from the pastor as I could. I remember never wanting to go to any kind of church activities. I remember, I remember oftentimes needing to go to the bathroom, uh, you know, during during song services and invitations. Because the fact of the matter was, I may have been there in person, but I was far from there in spirit. I wasn't even saved. That's right where some of you sit right now. Some of you, this is the last thing in the world you want to do right now. You think what we've been doing for the last 30 or 40 minutes in this building is the biggest waste of time that you could ever imagine in your life. There are some of you in this room right now, the only reason you go to church is because your parents make you go to church. The only reason you go there is because they drag you Sunday after Sunday, Sunday night after Sunday night. Some of you, you don't even have a choice as to whether you're going to go to the youth group or not because the fact of the matter is your parents make you go. There's some people in this room, you just tagged along with your youth group. You don't even really know how in the world you ended up here. You don't really ever go to church. It's really just kind of not what you're into. And you don't understand church. You don't understand preaching. You don't understand its significance. And the fact is, you may be here in person, but you're not here in spirit. And I want to say to you, young person, this idea of rebelling against God, of leaving what has been taught you, what has been trained in your life, is a very, very, very bad decision to make while you're young right now. Not only did they leave their country, but it's very evident, too, they left their convictions. Now, I want, I want you to see this. Look at what it says in verse number 3. Elimelech died, Naomi's, uh, Naomi's husband, and she was left and her two sons. Now, watch this. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. Now, the fact of the matter is this family got drugged into this because of the father. But when the father died, it, there's something that takes place in the lives of these boys that show us that their heart wasn't in it either. You see, there's a lot that we could say to blame Elimelech the father for the problems in the family. But the truth of the matter is, when he died, the Bible says that these boys married two women of Moab. Now, according to Ezra chapter number 9 and Nehemiah chapter number 13, this was a clearly forbidden thing in the Bible. Now, watch here. I want you to listen to me very carefully. The Bible does not speak against interracial marriage. Now, if you're having a hard time with what I just said, help yourself, friend. There is nothing in the Bible against interracial marriage. There is nothing of prejudice. Y'all better help me up in this place. There is no in, uh, inclining of prejudice anywhere in the Bible. There is not a superior race of people in the Bible. Uh, hey, excuse me. Red, yellow, black, white, they are all precious in God's sight. And if you don't like that, you're not going to like heaven because in heaven there will be somebody from every kindred, every tribe, every nation. Y'all ain't even listening to me tonight. There'll be people there from Africa. There'll be people there from Nigeria. There'll be people there from Mexico. There'll be people there from America and Europe and Russia and every other place in the world. There's nothing in the Bible against interracial marriage, but there is something in the Bible against interfaith marriage. 
The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has light with darkness? Uh, what communion hath, hath the people of God with the people of Belial? Well, we don't have any fellowship of people that do not know God, do not believe what we believe. And when these boys chose to marry these girls, it had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with faith. And these men decided they weren't going to marry the kind of people that God wanted them to marry. They weren't going to marry people of faith. They were showing that what they learned at their home and what they learned about their family and what they learned about their faith was no longer relevant for them. And I want to say to you, young person, what this shows me is there comes a time in every young person's life where they have got to make decisions on their own. These young people, when they got to make decisions on their own, listen very carefully, made the wrong decisions. You want to know why? They had no convictions. Hey, it's one thing, listen, it's one thing for your mom to tell you, don't marry somebody that's not a Christian. It's another thing for you to believe it and then do it. It's one thing for, 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 uh, for Brother Mike to stand up here all night long tell you that the Word of God is inerrant and the Word of God is inspired and the Word of God is the anchor of all of our hope and the foundation of our faith. It's one thing for you to hear that. It's another thing for you to live that. It's another thing for you to believe that. See, young person, what's happened today in our culture is like we have no convictions about anything. And when I say conviction, I'm talking about something that you believe, something that has strongly held a, a, a position in your life based upon the Word of God, something that you would give your life for, something that you would lose a friend over, something that you would stake your future on. It's something that, that you believe in, something that is a, a strongly and firmly held position of your faith that obviously these two boys did not have. Young person, do you have any convictions? Any. I mean, do you actually believe anything? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about the person of Jesus Christ? What do you believe about uh, the Lord's second coming? What do you believe about uh, your position on uh, where you stand on, on what salvation really is? Do you even know? Do you even care? Does it even matter to you? Do you know that in our world today there's a, an attempt to blend Islam and Christianity and Catholicism into one milk toast blended religion? And I want you to know, if you don't have some convictions in your life right now, you are going to get sucked right in to a cyclone of unbelief. Young person, you have got to have some convictions in your life about what you will and will not believe and what you will and will not do. And by the way, don't you think along with that, there ought to be some convictions in your life about how you're going to live and what you're going to do and where you're going to go and who your friends are going to be and what you're going to allow to influence your life and what you're going to listen to and what you're going to watch and who you're going to marry and where you're going to live and where you're going to go to church. Some convictions some things that you believe and some things that you are going to stand for and some things that you are going to put your faith in. And young person, if you don't, I've seen it time and time again. I, look, I've watched it right here from this camp. I'm thinking right now of a young lady that came to this camp, worked at this camp. Just a couple of years ago, got interested in a guy against the wishes of her preacher, against the wishes of her parents, against the wishes of all sound advice and counsel. And then not too long ago, I got pregnant by this same guy and now has a baby out of wedlock with him. And now her entire future has been cast a shadow on because she just decided that she was going to do what she wanted to do rather than follow biblical convictions in her life. Hey, where are you going to be in five years? Where are you going to be in 10? 
10 years? Where are you going to be when you're 25, 35, 45? Hey, listen, I'm not here tonight as a 41-year-old person living by what my parents spoon-fed me. I'm not living by what my professors taught me in college. I'm not living by what some pastor instructed me. I am a pastor. I am a husband. I am a father. And I've got to have some rock-solid beliefs on my own. How can I lead other people in my life if I don't even know what I believe? How are you going to lead a church one day? How are you going to lead a family one day, sir, when you can't even decide you're going to go to church next Sunday? Ladies, how in the world are you going to be a mother one day when you can't even figure out if you're supposed to date a boy that doesn't even love God and doesn't even go to church? How are you going to, how are you going to change this world? How are you going to pass away some of you guys in this room and you think you want to be a pastor because you think it's cool for some reason? If somebody, somebody uh, you know, preached an emotionally charged message when you were seven and you got all fired up and, you, and you're going to go be a pastor, really? And right here and right now, you can't even figure out what you believe? As a 16-year-old, you can't even figure out where you're going to go to college. You can't even figure out what you're going to do with your life. You can't even figure out what things are going to be dear to you. You can't even figure out some of the basic principles of Christian living and how I'm supposed to make decisions right now. And we're going to lead the church, and we're going to be the next deacons, and we're going to be the next pastors, and we're going to be the next teachers, and we're going to be the next leaders at Christian camps, and we're going to be the next moms and dads. Hey, young person, you have got to build in your life some things that you believe and that you're not going to let go of. Because if you don't, you will follow down the path of rebellion, and that's where you're going to go. So there's a choice of rebellion. Number two, there was a choice of revival. A choice of revival. I want you to see what happens here in verse number uh, five. It says that Naomi, or Malin and Chilean, excuse me, also died, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons. Now back up into verse number three, and I want you to see this phrase again. I want you to mark a couple phrases here. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was, say the next word with me, class. What was it? Left. Go down to verse five again. And the woman was what? Left. Hey, mark that little phrase down, was left. And let me ask you guys a question. What are you leaving behind? This woman was left. She had nothing. She lost her husband. She lost her, her sons. And in this culture, these were, this was a three strike on her account. She was going to be poor. She was going to be a widow. She had no evident opportunity to raise up boys, to raise up leaders in her family. And you can read about this when you read the rest of the book. In fact, when she, in just a moment, presents the opportunity to her daughters-in-law to go back to Bethlehem, the Bible says she tells them, look, I can't take care of you. I do not have another son for you to marry. I cannot bring for you everything that you need. It may be better for you just to turn around and go back. This woman had nothing. I want to say this to you, young person. When this father made this bad choice to go where he went and do what he did, he did not think about the fact that he was going to leave a legacy behind. And I want to challenge you, you're going to leave one behind too. But I want you to see that despite of everything that happened to her, in spite of all the bad choices that were made that affected her, look, if you will, at verse number six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might, say the next word with me, will you please? Return. Say that word one more time with me. Return. 
The Bible says in verse number uh, seven, she went forth out of her place where she was and her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to, say the word with me if you will, return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return unto thy mother's house, as the Lord will deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with me, uh, uh, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Verse 10, And they said unto her, Surely we will, what's the word here? Return with thee unto thy people. Man, I love that word, return. You know, the great thing I want to share with you guys tonight is this. There's always an opportunity to return to the Lord. I want to say to you tonight, I do not care where you are tonight. I do not care how far you have strayed tonight. I do not care what kind of scars you brought to camp with you tonight. I do not care what others may say about you or think about you. It does not matter how far into rebellion you have gone. It does not matter how evil maybe your thoughts and your actions have become. It does not matter if you care one thing about God tonight. I want you to know that he cares deeply about you. And I want you to know that with God, while you're breathing, while there's life, there's always a chance to return home. There's always a chance to come back. I mean, even the prodigal son, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my, bro- my father's hired servants have bread enough to eat in despair, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to my father, Father, I have sinned against thee and against heaven, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Hey, young person, there's always a chance to come to yourself and to come back to the Lord. There's an opportunity to return, but I want you to see this. There was a good reason to return. Now go back, if you will, to verse number six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. Watch this. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people with giving them bread. Why did they leave? Well, back in verse one, it says there was a famine in the land. God told them, When you live in wholesale disobedience to me, one of the curses that will come upon you is a famine. Now think about this. These people were getting what they deserved, a famine. But now the Bible says, watch this. The Lord revisited his people with a harvest, with bread, with a blessing. Hey, young person, listen to me very carefully. If you're not encouraged right now, I'm not sure that I can encourage you. I just want to tell you tonight that we can fail God miserably. We can turn our back on God terribly. We can stiffen our necks and we can rebel in measure and and terribly measured forms. But I want to tell you, where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. And I want to tell you, there's one thing you can never do, and that is this. You can never out-sin the love of God. You can never outrun the reach of God. You can never exhaust the grace of God. He is always available to you to return. And knowing that about him, man, it ought to just compel you back into him because he's available you say you don't know me preacher I don't have to know you I know that God knows you and God loves you more than I could ever know you and wants you to come home that's what I know you say well you say well man I'm 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 dabbling in in uh in the occult God says come on home you say you don't know what I'm doing with my boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't matter come on home you say, well, man, you spoke about gender issues and homosexuality this morning, and I, that's me. That's where I live. Come on home. 
you say, I'm bitter against my parents. I'm bitter against my grandparents. I, I don't like church anymore because this leader did this. Hey, that's fine. Whatever. Come on home. There's a chance for you to have revival because God is willing to give it to you. A number of years ago, I was preaching at a, a uh, retreat up in Wyoming, <clears throat> and it was a ski, uh, some kind of youth ski event or whatever, and, and I flew up there to preach, <clears throat> and I arrived a few minutes early, and really before kind of the whole group got there, and the service was going to be <clears throat> in the ski lodge. So I got there, and I kind of... Walked up to the, uh, the, the little, it was kind of on a second floor, big open area. <clears throat> I was one of the first people there. And people started coming in. I knew some of them, a few of the youth pastors from the area. And um, I, I remember that just before <clears throat> I got there, I got a message over Facebook from a guy named Jeremy. And Jeremy said, hey, Brian, you probably don't remember me, but I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen you. I cannot wait to see you again. And I don't know if you ever get a message or some kind of note from somebody on Facebook or something, you start scanning their profile, trying to figure out who in the world they are, right? Maybe that doesn't happen to you. It happens to me all the time. Some dude even told me earlier this week, as soon as I met him, hey, man, I follow you on Facebook. And I'm like, awesome, dude. I have no idea what that means. I don't know half the people that follow me on Facebook, but great, man. I mean, obviously, we're like best friends. And so I started scrolling, and I could not put two and two together. Man, I just couldn't figure out. I had no idea who the guy was. I mean, he was a pastor in Wyoming, but I could not find any kind of connection at all. So I was kind of curious. I'm up there standing I'm, as I'm waiting, and people are kind of walking by. I'm, of course, I'm, I'm, like, I'm kind of like looking around, trying to find out who he is, trying to see if I can catch his eye. And you know, I keep rehearsing his name in my mind because when I see him, he's going to come up to me. I'm going to say, hey, Jeremy, good to see you, man. He did, sure enough. He popped up. He had about five or six teenagers from his church in Douglas, Wyoming. They, he pops up, makes a beeline to me, shakes my hand, says, hey, man, hey, I, I, I want to talk to you. I've got to share something with you. He said, we don't even have time right now. I said, I said I had, that's, that's fine. I said, where are you staying tonight? He told me where he's staying. I said, look, after the service, why don't we meet up uh, for a coffee or a, or a Coke or something? And, uh, and so that night, after the message, Jeremy came over and knocked on my, my hotel room door. We had a little table in the room. We sat down and began to talk. Jeremy told me that where we had met was at a camp up in, uh, thanks, man, a camp up in Wisconsin that I had preached at years and years ago. And in fact, I think it was as early as like 2003, and this was probably 2014 or something like that. And I went there on one occasion and preached to a very large group of people on a Saturday. It was a youth rally. I mean, it was a huge youth rally. It was in a gym like this. The whole thing was packed. They had bleachers on the sides, and the bleachers were completely packed with people. It was like 1,200 people there. And I preached that night. And he said, I want to tell you about that service. He said, I was there. He said, I wasn't a teenager. He said, I was a sponsor. And he said, to tell you the truth, I wasn't even right with God. He said, I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, no. He said, I, I, I went to that church that I was a sponsor with when I was a kid. I got away from the Lord in high school. I went off to the military, did four years in the military. He said, I came back home after doing my four years in the military. He said, now I'm like 22 years old. He said, and I just knew I had to get in church. I didn't know, I didn't know what. I, and the only thing I knew is that when I was a kid, I rode a bus to this church, this Baptist church. He said, so I showed up. 
He said, I'm telling you right now, I didn't know anything about the Lord. He said, I made a profession of faith when I was a kid. He said, but I was totally living a rebellious life. He said, I didn't want anything to do it. He said, I just knew I needed to be in church, but I had no heart for it. And he said, I was sitting there one of the first Sundays and the pastor stood up at the, uh, at the end of the service and said, uh, I, we are going to this youth conference next Saturday and we need a van driver. And he said, I thought to myself, that preacher's daughter works with the teenagers. And he said, I bet she's gone. He said, and she was cute. And she wasn't going to have anything to do with me because I was a loser. He said, so I went up to the pastor after the service and said, Pastor, I'd love to help with the teenagers. He said, I'm going to drive. If it's okay with you, I'll drive. So he does. So on Saturday, he jumps in the van with a, about five or six, maybe ten teenagers. Of course, pastor's daughter was there. She's in the van. They rode together. He acted like he was spiritual the whole time. She basically wanted nothing to do with him. And he pulls up on the property there in Wisconsin. And lo and behold, he sits in the service that I'm preaching at, trying to impress the preacher's daughter who knew that he was struggling spiritually. He said, Brian, I am telling you, I knew that you came to preach to those teenagers, but as far as I was concerned, that message was for me. He said, the Holy Spirit of God worked in my life. He said, God spoke to me to surrender and give my life over to him. He said, when you gave that invitation and teenagers were coming forward, he said, I took my old heart and I bowed it before the Lord. He said, I buried my knees in those cold bleachers. He said, I was about as far away from you as you could see. He said, I got on my knees and I gave my whole life to Jesus Christ, totally surrendered my life to God. He said, I went back home. I told my church, I told my preacher and my preacher came to me and said, hey, we got a little Bible institute here at the church. Why don't you start studying the Bible Institute. And he did about two or three years of Bible classes in the Bible Institute of that church. And guess what? Married the preacher's daughter. I'm telling you, Cinderella all the way, man. He said, and just a couple years ago, we got a call from this little church in Douglas, Wyoming. So me and my wife, and our kids packed up and moved all the way across the country to Wyoming. He said, I got there and there's like 12 people in the church, Brian. He said, since we've been there, we have seen this church grow. We have seen God work in a powerful way. We've seen people that never went to church a day in their life become followers of Jesus, get baptized and out of the church. And I am telling you, we sat there for like two or three hours and talked and rejoiced in the blessings of God. And I'm sitting there thinking the whole time, that rascal came to camp because he was checking out the preacher's daughter and he didn't even have any heart for God. And guess what? God had a heart for him. And God got a hold of his heart and transformed his heart in one night, in one setting, just like this. And I'm telling you that if you will open up your heart and return to the Lord, you can have the decision of revival in your life as well. And let me give you a third decision that can be made tonight. It's the decision of redemption. Now I want you to watch something very carefully in this story. Because when Naomi decides to go, she gives her daughters-in-law a choice as to whether they were going to go or not. Now, I recognize that, uh, that as you look at this, it, it, is, it is a clear-cut decision as to whether they are going to follow the God of Naomi. 
And I believe that this was a decision to follow everything that that meant, ultimately leading to faith in Christ or rejection of faith in Christ. Now watch this. Verse 8. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grants you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept, and they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee and to thy people. Now watch this. So remember, that their first reaction is, Okay, we'll follow. But now she's going to explain some more. Verse 11. Now turn, daughters, why will you go with me? Are there not any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn, I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, I should have a husband also tonight, and, and he should bear sons. Would you also tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from, from having a husband's name, my daughters? For it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's basically saying this. She's basically saying, look, guys, I can't take care of you. There's nothing there for you. Uh, it's not in me. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to give you a husband. I'm not going to be able to give you the money that you're looking for. I'm not going to be able to sustain you. Now watch the decision of Orpah, verse 14. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. Watch this. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law, watch this, is gone back unto her people, watch this phrase here, and unto her gods. This woman, Orpah, and by the way, how many, is there anybody here named Ruth? Would you raise your hand, any Ruths in the room? That's very unusual. There's usually one or two. I know there ain't an Orpah in the room. I guarantee you this, you've probably met countless Ruths in your life. You've probably never met an Orpah. I didn't say Oprah. I said Orpah. Okay, they're about the same, basically. Orpah is told, I am not going to be able to sustain you. She reaches out and kisses her mother-in-law and turns back, and then it is said of her, she decided, it is a decision to go back to her people, watch it, and unto her gods. Now, when Ruth makes the decision to stay, she gives one of the most beautiful proclamations of faith in God in the entire Bible. And she says this, right? Where you go, I will go. Where you dwell, I will dwell. Your people will be my people. And what? Your what? Your God will be my God. Make no mistake about it, folks. This was a clear cut decision to either have faith in God and follow God or turn back to false gods. Orpah decided to turn back back, Ruth decided to embrace and follow. And I say the same thing to you this week. There's only two kinds of kids in this room, and I'm not talking about boys and girls or tall or short, good looking or ugly. I'm not talking about junior high and high school. I'm talking about saved and lost. I ain't talking about do you go to church. I'm talking about saved and lost. I'm not talking about are you a pretty good kid. No, no, no. No, I'm talking about they're saved and lost. And I'm saying to you, young person, that's the most important decision that you'll ever make in your life. Are you going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you going to put your faith in him as the only way of salvation? 
And you could argue that this was Old Testament new. Listen, people were saved in the Old Testament by looking to the Messiah. We are saved in the New Testament by looking back to the Messiah. Nobody, Old or New Testament, has ever been saved without the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody. And as you read the book of Ruth and you read the story, it will become very evident that Ruth was a believer in the Messiah and not only a believer in the Messiah, but a great, 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 great grandmother of the Messiah. All part of God's plan. So watch me now. Have you personally accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know for certain right here and right now that if you were to die, you would go to heaven? Do you know that Jesus has forgiven you of your sins? Do you know that you are a child of God? Do you know that you've been born again? Do you know that you are following Christ right now? Do you know that? It is a decision that everybody needs to make. For as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Look, I'm well aware of the fact that God does the saving, folks. I wasn't born last night. I've been to a few Bible classes in my life, but I know this, that although God does 100% of the saving, you do 100% of the deciding that you're going to believe in him. You say, I don't even believe that. Really? Whosoever shall call. That's active tense, scholars. Whosoever shall call. That means the subject is performing the action of the verb. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, watch this, shall be saved. That's passive tense. That means the subject is receiving the action. Hey, it's very simple, folks. You do the calling, God does the saving. You do the believing, God does the saving. You act upon what God shows you through his word and what Jesus did for you. And the minute you put your faith in Christ, the minute you accept him just like Ruth did, you are accepted in the beloved. You are forgiven of your sins. You are granted permanent and eternal status in the family of God when you decide to make the decision of salvation. Have you made that? You say, I go to church. You can go to church and go to hell, friend. Going to church ain't getting you to heaven. Jesus is. You say, well, I'll have you know, I got baptized when I was a baby. Friend, if you got baptized when you're, if you're a baby and you never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to die and go to a devil's hell because being baptized as a baby has nothing to do with being saved. You say, are you kidding me? I have prayed the rosary and I have taken communion and I was confirmed when I was 14 years after this and this and this. My friend, listen, you can be confirmed. You can be baptized. You can take the Lord's Supper. You can be an altar boy, an altar girl. You can be a deacon. You can be a preacher. But if you have never been saved by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will definitely die and go to a devil's hell because there is only one way of salvation and it's not church. It's not baptism. It's not being a good kid. It's not singing in a choir. It's not accepting communion. It's not being baptized. It's not even preaching the gospel. It's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I want to stand here today and tell you that I can remember, as sure as I'm standing here, just about a week and a half ago, I celebrated 22 years of knowing Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. It was on May 25th, 1997, that I, one week shy of my 19th birthday, went to church, a rebellious twisted up, messed up teenager, far from God, walked into that church feeling like the whole place was going to cave in on me, walked into that place and met with the preacher that Sunday morning. 
And there, as I buried my knees in the carpet after hearing that Jesus loved me, I don't know why he loved me, but he did. And that Jesus died for me, I don't know why he died for me, but he did. And that he shed his blood for me, I don't know why he shed his blood for me, but he did. And that he rose again the third day for me, and I don't know why he did that, but I thank God that he did. And I, on that day, put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and I got down on my knees. I was on my way to hell, or when I got up off my knees by faith, I was on my way to heaven and knew Jesus Christ as my Savior and have never been the same since. 22 years later, I'm still following Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you, that is a decision that every single person needs to make. Let's bow for prayer, good morning. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Southland Podcast. May the message you've just heard be truth that transforms your heart and life. Christ loves you and wants you to grow in His grace through salvation and sanctification. If you've never placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, we'd love to talk to you personally. Please give us a call at 318-894-9154 or shoot me an email at mherpster at southlandcamp.org. Christ has promised eternal life and a life worth living if you will only believe in Him. May the Lord bless you in your pursuit of Christ-like living. Tune in next time right here for another message on the Southland Podcast.